I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of 2 Corinthians, to chapter 10. I know it's the case sometimes when people are visiting or maybe just haven't thought through the issue in some time that they hear certain words in our songs and they may be jarred by them, like the fact that the psalmist says that God hates the wicked. There are plenty of people who would feel it's inappropriate to ever say God hates anyone or anything, or to want to say that, well, he hates wickedness, but he doesn't hate the wicked. He loves the sinners, he hates the sin. There's a kind of truth in that, but on the other hand, you have to reconcile with the very words of Scripture that this psalm is based on. God hates the wicked, just like it says that he is a jealous God. And it has to be run through an understanding that the Lord is holy, which means that our way of experiencing hatred is, of course, affected by our sin and our ignorance. God's way of jealousy is the appropriate jealousy of, say, what if a spouse was not jealous that their betrothed was cheating? There's an appropriate jealousy, right? And God is a jealous God. He's also a God who hates Sin, because he realizes it's destructive, and he hates those who willfully and responsibly do it. And yet he's also a God of mercy, a God of mercy, and so it's possible for him to simultaneously abhor a person as a creature of sin, and yet also to love them. That bears on the idea this evening that there is a war going on in the world. The Bible doesn't shy away from using warfare imagery either. It often speaks of peace, but it also speaks of us being involved in a war. And we're going to be looking at a passage here in 2 Corinthians 10 that has to do with that. Now, by way of preface, understand something. Tonight we're embarking on a new series. This series should run through most of the summer in the evening. And we're going to be looking at some of what the Bible has to say about the thought life of Christian disciples. Most of those sermons are going to deal in a close examination of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. It may be familiar to you. It's the famous passage that says, think on these things, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just and pure, etc. But this evening, we are beginning at the claim Christ makes over the mind and the role that we play in a battle for the mind. And so we begin here at verse 1 of chapter 10. Let's give attention to the word of God. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh." For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you this evening that you've gathered us here. Lord, just as we need food every day, so we need your word. But just as we depend upon you to make our food nourishing to our bodies, to give us health and life, so we need your Holy Spirit to make us receptive in the right way to the things you lay before us. We pray that you would give us such a mind and such a heart. We thank you that you do perform this work in answer to our prayers. For you hear us in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'd imagine that most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with some of the words in the Gospel of Matthew that are often called the Great Commission. The so-called Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's just before he's ascending to glory. And he gives his church a directive. He sends them on a mission. And he tells them, go into all the world and make disciples. Go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey whatsoever I have commanded you. And all of us, in a whole variety of ways, participate in that mission. We all have a role. Ephesians chapter 4 says that the work of the ministry is to equip the saints for ministry. Now, when we think about the Great Commission, perhaps the most familiar analogy that comes to mind is that of the ambassador. There are all kinds of analogies in the Bible to represent this work, this mission that we're on. But probably the most common is the ambassador. An ambassador is someone sent, say, by a king to go out and bear official news, to be heralds, to declare something aloud. The ambassador goes out declaring the terms of peace that come to us in the gospel, that God presents reconciliation with himself freely through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a message of peace. But here in our passage, there's a strikingly different way of representing the mission, this disciple-making mission that we are all involved in. Here in 2 Corinthians, the language is not of peace. It is of war. The apostle speaks of weapons and wielding them, of tearing down strongholds. I mean, really picture that for a moment. Some huge castle built up, and then the kinds of siege works that would take it and make it into rubble. This is the imagery in mind. And then, of course, of taking captivity captive. All of this is martial language that's being applied to the mission of the church. Understandably, given the history of very real religious warfare that has existed in the world, some people are uncomfortable with this kind of language in the Bible. But here it is. And we have to understand what is the nature of the war that we are involved in. How does God call us to fight? And what is our particular role in this kind of battle? So these are the things that we begin to think through tonight that we're going to be thinking through over a number of sermons. This evening, we're going to spend the majority of our time simply looking at the nature of the battle that Paul is talking about here. I won't lay out all of the headings in advance. I'll mention them as we go because they're going to be relatively brief and there are a number of them. There are five of them. 
We're going to spend most of our time on that. And then by way of conclusion, what we're going to do is really ask one question. What is your role in light of this passage? And I'll tell you in advance, you have to ask the question, am I mostly to read this passage as though I am Paul, or am I mostly to read this passage as though I am someone else? Depending where you lay the emphasis, that will change some of how you engage your battle. So these are the things before us this evening. Now, stay where you're at, basically, but if you have a Bible, in a moment I'll ask you to look at chapter 11, verse 12. As I deal first with this question, who in the context here is Paul battling? If you want to understand war, you need to have some sense of who's on what side. Who is Paul battling? Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, his adversaries are people. They are people both inside and outside of the church. What they have in common is that in one way or another, they are influencing others to live in rebellion or unbelief to Jesus Christ. Not necessarily in every way. It could be just one way that this or that person is influencing others towards unbelief or rebellion. But in particular, he has in mind a group of false teachers that were influencing and infiltrating the church. Notice what it says in 2 Corinthians eleven twelve. Paul says, And what I'm doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission... They work on the same terms as we do. In other words, there were some people who were claiming to have the same authority as the apostles who are appointed by Jesus Christ and to be basically about the same mission. Verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. If you read through the epistles of Paul, you'll come to discover that this is not just one group of people. Just like today, there were a whole variety of people who saw Christian gatherings and wanted to have an influence among them. They are driven by fleshly desires for glory, acknowledgement, the use of their skills. But what they have in common is they are not submitted to Christ and his word. And they are sowing error in the church. For instance, in Romans chapter 6, Paul is to respond to people who are saying, Shall we not sin in order that grace may abound? If grace is God showing mercy towards sinners, then the more that we sin, the more gracious he is. It sounds so backwards to anyone who has marinated in true Christian teaching, and yet with our own ears, many of us have heard people talk that way, haven't we? And so Paul is dealing with these different groups of people who are competing for the loyalty that really belongs to Jesus Christ. It is no different today. Both within the church And by within the church, I do mean people who profess to be Christians, maybe pastors. And also within the church, that is, individual members of the church, maybe even sincere Christians at times, are promoting ideas 
or setting an example that undermines obedience and faith in Christ. That hasn't changed. People in different ways are drawing, competing for the minds of the church. I had the sense of this uh, just last week. I was driving my kids to the train park in Scottsdale. I don't normally drive down Lincoln. And as I was going down, I see just big church after big church. And part of me, I believe in the Catholicity of the church, that there's one true people of God standing in all kinds of different denominations all over the whole world, united through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I want to pass every church and pray for that church and and believe good is being worked there. But on the other hand, noticing church after church flying signs that made it very clear that in specific ways they are not in submission to Jesus Christ. Not as we understand from his word. And so there is opposition that we have to be on guard for. Now, what was Paul fighting for? Picture the war room in really the way I imagine this is World War II style. Roosevelt had a a war room. I discovered recently while reading that when President Roosevelt passed away, his vice president, Truman, didn't even know where it was. He was so out of the loop about where it was. We need to be very much in the loop about the strategy involved. Yes, we believe Christ brings victory, but we are involved in the war. So picture this war room where you have a map and you've got these arrows drawn onto the map showing these are the places that we intend to take. What are the places that Paul is aiming for as a minister of the word? The arrows point everywhere. They point really specifically to a complete mastery of every human mind until it is submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. He says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, there's a lot here, but I want you to focus especially on this. First, the idea of every thought, every thought captive. Here he means his aim is for all of the products of thinking that occur in human heads to be conformed to the Lord's way of thinking, the products of thinking, but also the process of thinking, the root beliefs that give rise to why we value or act in certain ways. But the word used for thought here, it's fascinating. The Greek term can actually also be used for the mind itself, thinkers. And so it's hard to know how perfectly to translate this. When there is ambiguity in the text, I think it's generally best to accept it was God's design for there to be a certain amount of ambiguity. You cannot take every thought captive unless the thinkers themselves have been brought about to obedience and to a desire willingly to submit. And then that note of captivity, this is not cruel, it's not rude. The goal of the Christian in taking captive, in a sense, all the world, is not like that which began in the 600s that you see in Islam, where through threat of physical violence, through subjugation and social humiliation of every kind, we are going to bring you to an outward conformity, but inwardly, as long as you pay the tax, you're fine. 
Captivity, the word that's used here, primarily has to do with a transferring of a person from out of authority under authority. It does not necessarily have to do with a degradation of the person who has been taken captive. Paul himself describes himself as having been taken captive by Christ. And yet, having been led captive, as it says in Philippians, that Jesus led captivity captive. Those who were enslaved under one tyranny are brought under the authority of Christ. That's liberty. To be under Christ as your only master is to be set free from all of the millions of different false masters who would oppress. You cannot be out on your own alone. And so Paul is fighting for the deliverance of people into a way of thinking that expresses true Christian liberty. Now, what is his overall strategy? How is he looking at the big picture of how he's going to accomplish this? Imagine for a moment a person building a great big siege works. They've got it on wheels and they begin to roll it. They're going to put it somewhere. You're usually going to put it against a castle. That's why you're building this thing. It's not designed for field battle between the armies as they're all running around. Siege works, they go against a stronghold. And they're not going to put it just anywhere on the castle. They're going to think carefully, where is the weakest point? Or what is perhaps the area that we most need to get into first? Paul directs his siege works, so to speak, against every argument that undermines obedience to Christ. And this is precious to understand. He doesn't see himself primarily pointing his arrows at people. People, in a sense, are the person being held captive. Paul's arrow is aimed, or the siege work is aimed, at the fortification that is holding the person spiritually captive. So even if he has to speak hard words at times against people, he's for them. His embattlement is laid against arguments. See what it says in verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We need to appreciate this. Christianity doesn't just bring the word against particular behaviors. Behaviors arise out of beliefs, out of the things that people value, out of what they think is going to bring them life. We were created for life, and Jesus says, I came in order that you might have life and have it abundantly. Sin is the delusion that evil, disobedience to the Lord, will bring us life and satisfaction. It works that in us. And then you have these fortifications, ideas that justify those beliefs. Too many to name. Thoughts like, for instance, God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy, but that's code. Happy here means have the pleasures that feel good right now in this life. To not feel pain. But if you start with certain beliefs, then actions flow out of that. Disobedience to the Lord flows out of that. And so Paul's strategy overall is against forms of thought, concepts that undermine obedience and belief in Christ. Now, what are his weapons and his tactics? His weapons and his tactics. This is the fourth of the five 
subheadings. We see his overall strategy is to go against the arguments. How is he going to do it? If you were to survey the epistles, and in particular the book of Acts, you would get a very clear idea of this. I know that many of you have. I want to encourage especially, perhaps, I'm not going to tell parents what they must do with their kids this week, but if there was a good assignment for your children, it might be, especially if they're, say, over age 11 or 12, read the entire book of Acts within a period of a week, if not a day. You can do it. It takes about an hour and 45 minutes to read the book of Acts. Not terribly long. Plenty of movies much longer and much less significant, or even, dare I say, entertaining. Acts is wonderful. But as you move through the book, you see what is Paul's actual methodology? What does he do? And what he does is take the word of God and prayerfully, carefully expose and apply the teaching of the word to every conceivable opposition that he meets. Everything that he means. He doesn't have to become this great philosopher. His opponents, his detractors in Corinth, are often saying, Paul just seems like a simpleton. He, he wasn't. His writings are still being read and discussed thousands of years later, and none of theirs are. Paul was not a simpleton. But he didn't put his confidence in human reasoning of itself. He reasons, but he reasons simply on the basis of clarifying what does God say. What has God written? And where did he learn this kind of fighting? He learns it from Christ. When Satan comes to tempt, what is Jesus' response? Has not it been written? Does not scripture say? Satan always wants to come and say, has God really said? And we must respond in the affirmative. Yes, here. And to know the word. Now, that's not the only way that Paul reasons. He also reasons from the light of nature. Our confessions, the Belgic Confession in particular, draws this out when it speaks of God having spoken through two books. Two books, so to speak. The book of creation, all that can be known apart from the scriptures, and then special revelation. And you see an instance of this in Acts chapter 24. Acts 24, Paul is speaking with Felix, a governor. And he is witnessing to him. He's trying to bring him to faith in the gospel and to obedience in faith. Acts 24, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. I've had enough of this. I feel a little uncomfortable. I'd like you to go away, please. But see what it says. Paul reasoned. He didn't just say, this is a Bible verse. Take it. He's reasoning, and it says he reasons about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And this is often where our conversations with ourselves and others have to begin. Righteousness. There is a standard of right and wrong. All people, unless they are the most debauched, will acknowledge that some things under every circumstance will always only be wrong. I won't even name them from the pulpit. And your mind is as vile as mine if you let it run like 
the fish taking out the line, there are some things which all people know are evil. If there are things which are evil, they are only so because they lack good. Evil of itself doesn't bring anything to the table. It's a lack of the good. If there is evil, there is good. People say, how can there be God if there's so much evil in the world? Because there's evil in the world, there must be a God because there is a standard of good. Now, if there is good, then there's the question of self-control. And that's where Paul goes next. All right, have you lived up to even your own standard of good? Well, I try. I didn't ask, did you try? I ask, do you? Do you live up to your own standard? If you know that there is good, then you have dwelling in you the testimony of an infinite God. The only way there could be a universal standard. It doesn't arise out of biology. Even if somebody wanted to believe in God's guidance of evolution, evolution cannot produce morality. Evolution cannot make murder always evil. Tell that to the praying mantis. It's not living by your rules. It's not created in the image of God. It has a different purpose. The standard written upon our heart means we are accountable to God. Because we know there is a God, then we have to ask, have I obeyed? If I haven't obeyed, then Paul brings him last to the coming judgment. And the standard that we see is of a holy God. If God is truly good, even the light of nature tells us he cannot permit evil to go unpunished. But that's as far as the book of nature can take you. That's as far as general revelation can take you. And that's where special revelation comes in and speaks to us about God providing a sufficient substitute about Jesus Christ. That God taking our nature to himself, presents a sufficient offering, a whole life of obedience, and that he bears the wrath on the cross, that he's raised to intercede for us and to gather us. And it's from that point that you flow into the scriptures. Now, the work that Paul is doing throughout the epistles and throughout Acts is to baptize people in a whole new mindset conformed to that message from nature and from scripture. That's where his tactics come into play. But I want you to notice something particular here. Though it involves reason, he does not depend upon reason of itself. And as we talk for several weeks about the mind, there is the temptation to think in some way that the goal is to become intellectual and rationalistic. It's not. God uses all of these things but it's he who makes them effective. See what he says in verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul says, one man plants, another man waters. It's the Lord who gives the increase. In other words, one person comes along and sows the gospel, another continues to teach the word. And of course, they're teaching, they're rationally explaining the word, but it's God who gives the increase. This is going to matter very much for how we war. I want you to look at one passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2.
2 Timothy chapter 2, here he's giving instruction to a relatively young minister of the word. Paul says in verse 26, rather 24, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Just as you see at the beginning of our text tonight, Paul saying, I'm speaking to you with gentleness. My detractors fault me for that. They think it means I'm weak or not sure of what I'm saying. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, and then focus on this, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I would venture to say that this is one of the most significant passages in all of the scriptures to describe how we engage other people with the gospel and with the word in general. The servant of the Lord must be gentle, must be kind. Why? Knowing that it's God who grants repentance. The word there means a changing of the mind, a U-turn in the whole way of thinking and life. It's God who grants that. Now, does that mean Paul throws up his hands and says, well, since God does it, there's no use in me teaching? No, he says the servant of the Lord must teach. Any more than we know, I trust you believe. It's God who grants healing and nourishment, but you still use medicine and you still eat food. God delights to show himself quietly through the means. But what does it mean for the fact that you know it's God ultimately working spiritually, making these means mighty? It means that you don't have to war according to the flesh. You never catch a note in anything Paul is saying here of the desire to be violent to his detractors or of belligerence. In fact, he says in verse 8 that he has authority for building up, not for destroying you. His goal is not to destroy people. And sometimes people hear this passage about Paul tearing down strongholds and taking every thought captive, and they become excited about the idea of going out there and showing some people that they are wrong. But here, Paul is, if anything, erring on the side of gentleness in the way that he wars because he knows that God's means are spiritual and he doesn't want there to be any impression that the battle comes through human power. Here with me one more passage and then we'll come to reflect a little bit and conclude. It's another passage in Acts. In Acts, the apostle is speaking before two rulers, Festus and Agrippa. These are great men in their day. Imagine... Uh, a lowly pastor being brought in to speak with President Biden. And how might he speak to him? Especially, Paul is aware, I would imagine, of some of the idolatries and some of the injustices each of these men are guilty of. Hear his speech. Note his tone. Acts 26, verse 24. 
And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus then said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and there he's speaking about the resurrection of Christ, the miracles which ensued, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you not believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. All who hear me this day, who else was in the room that day? His, his accusers, the very people teaching against Paul that he was in this court battle with, and the very people who want to keep him in chains. The desire to take every idea captive is the desire to bring true liberty through Jesus Christ to all people. Where then do we fit into this? Very briefly, I want you to think about that question. Who are you in this passage? There is a temptation here. The temptation when reading Paul is to primarily situate ourselves in his shoes and to think of ourselves as trying to be like Paul. Often that's true. But he has a different role and he has different gifting. James says in James chapter 3, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I was practically birthed onto the internet when I was 13. That was the year that we got dial-up in the home. And I had a blog by age 13 or 14. Started to share my needless thoughts with the world. And I believe I was earnest in a lot of it, but like all human beings, and then especially youth, and I say this by no offense, but what does Proverbs say? It says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of youth. And then that same word fool is used for a 40-year-old person elsewhere, I think in Second Chronicles, which tells us that if you're under 40, you still count as youth, and there's plenty of foolishness there too, so I'm not free of this. But there's a temptation as a Christian, I saw myself as a Christian then, to want to go out and find and argue and show people the truth and to be belligerent in tone. At age 20, I had begun to meet Reformed people and began attending at Oceanside URC. One of the pastors there at that time, he's not there anymore, uh, he approached me. And I don't think he knew that I was blogging practically every day. And then by that point, there was Facebook, too, so I was, you know, <laughs> spreading the faith. But I had, I had just come to clarity about the gospel, and he, this pastor came to me, and he said, do you, I've noticed you like to talk. Do you like to write? And I said, I do. I have a blog. And he stopped me there, and he said, 
Let me encourage you, for maybe the next five years or until the elders tell you, use your gifts simply to exhort people about the gospel and the most clear things. And try to learn how to speak tactfully so that when people read your writing, they understand that you're for them. It's really hard. It's really hard to speak in that way to others. The language of battle can't be avoided. But the danger is that we take that and we run out of here and we light torches online or in person. And in doing that, we actually undermine the effect of the word. God delights to use weakness. That doesn't mean holding back your beliefs. It does mean approaching with humility and with an obvious desire for the person to be built up. I would encourage you, rather than seeing yourself in this passage primarily as a Paul, see yourself primarily as those to whom it was written. That was, for me, in in some ways, the insight of this text, uh, was to be reading it and thinking of it through the Pauline lens and then to say, wait, it's written to the churches. I'm in a church. This is, it's written to me. And so think of it this way. Just as the Corinthian church members at this time were being fought over for their minds, you are the territory that is being fought over, your mind, your heart. There are competing forces all around you. You can't walk into many stores today and not see a a love is love shirt. And that is exactly the kind of stronghold I'm talking about where it presents an idea, and the idea is what justifies, fortifies that which is contrary to the Lord. And they are designed in clever ways where you feel, well, now I'm an unloving person if I don't agree. And part of what we have to learn to do is bring the word to bear against that. Who even was saying what love is? Where did you come up with the idea there is love? What is your standard of love? By this we know, love, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. What is your standard? Where did you derive it from? What's your authority? Every one of us, if we are not on guard to defend ourselves, these ideas build up block by block fortifications in our own hearts. Slowly, through the things we watch, the television shows that are written by apologists, many of them, of the world. Probably most of them. They have their own beliefs. We have to be on guard. Romans 12.2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. For then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. That will be our goal for the next several weeks. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving willingness to call us to do war. We thank you that you equip us through your word, by your spirit, to keep up this battle. We pray in particular, Lord, that you would make us more keenly aware of this element of our lives, that Forces that are spiritual, invisible, are nevertheless true and really trying to mislead us and bring us into bondage to sin and unbelief. We pray that you would give us more hunger for your word and teach us how to fight by it.
in order that we would be valiant for truth and effective for the blessing of others. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.